0: Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Chelsea Handler knows how to be unforgettable. The comedian and author who once said, I try to make fun of everyone as often as possible, first came to our attention as host of Chelsea Lately, the raucous roundtable show she hosted from 2007 to 2014. And as the writer of a few best-selling books that chronicled her one-night stands, feelings on vodka, big yes, and having children, hard no. It's tough to imagine now, but there was a time when networks were iffy on the concept of a woman-led talk show. Chelsea not only kicked down that door, She quickly established herself as one of the most fearless, scary, funny hosts of our time. On her show, no celebrity or guest was safe from her razor jabs. And her confidence approaching serious swagger levels was thrilling to watch, and still is, even if it was a little dangerous. We might not have known it then, but Chelsea Handler's Take No Prisoners success made room for other important voices, like Michelle Wolf, Samantha Bee, and Busy Phillips. Since then, Chelsea's had a series on Netflix, Chelsea Does, where, among other adventures, she traveled to Peru to take ayahuasca and another show simply called Chelsea, a loose take on the talk show she intended to be, quote, the college education I forgot to get. She became an activist, charging head-on against a laundry list of injustices and showing up everywhere from the campaign trail and voting booths to elect more women to office. Basically, as she puts it, she was learning to be a better citizen. She's now filming a documentary on white privilege, and her new book, Life Will Be the Death of Me, and You Too, continues to confront some tough topics, this time very personal and from her past, including the deaths of her brother Chet and her mom from cancer, as well as her ongoing exploration of love and relationships. There's no question Chelsea Handler is on a journey, And even if it's getting a marijuana facial, giving her an unexpected but not altogether unwelcome 72-hour high, there's no way we're not going along with her. Chelsea Handler, it is such a pleasure to have you on UnStyle today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And congratulations on the book. Thank you. I was just saying to you as you were walking in that you've really been busy, just, I don't want to say making the rounds, but you've really been making the rounds talking about the book. And the book is called Life
1: Will Be the Death of Me. I'm treating the book like my baby. Like it it's is your my baby. baby. Yeah. Well, you have many babies, actually. But this is my youngest baby. <laughs> it's <laughs> newest baby. Therefore, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's my newest baby. No, it felt like I was having a baby when I wrote this book. I mean, I would sit in so many airports, because that's where I like to write, in lounges. And I would sit and I would just be bawling writing about my mother or my brother. And I was like, oh, God, this is a wreck. But I was at a place where I could actually deal with crying in public, not giving a shit if anybody saw me crying, just being really present with what I was writing. And it was like the most cathartic. I understand now why people write books. I finally feel like I've written something for the first time in my life of merit. Like this is worthwhile.
0: There's a lot of material in here, too. And I have to say, you're a really beautiful writer.
1: And I don't oh, know. I thought you were going to just tell me I was beautiful. I was like, thank you. You're so beautiful. No one said that all day today. So thank you for saying, thanks <laughs> Nobody for bringing said that? it up. <laughs> nope, not yet. I mean, I've been telling myself all morning. It was such an important experience for me to have, A, as a creator like somebody who likes to create things and b as a an emotional kind of you know i learned all this information through therapy and i was dealing with a psychiatrist who was really helping me unwrap my stuff to go through that experience and then also write it down was kind of extinguishing it for me like okay let me get it out let me put it out there and for me, I felt like, oh, I've made this entire career in oversharing, and here's actually something of merit to share, something that could actually help other people who are locked or trapped or stuck in their pain, which, you know, I was stuck in from when I was a very little girl. So, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I
0: think that it really is such an important root of the book.
1: Yeah. So I have six kids in my family. There were three boys, three girls. I was the youngest girl. And my brother was the oldest boy. His name was Chet. And when I was nine years old, I was kind of like, you know, my family was fucked up, but they were like fun fucked up. We were full. It was like a full house. The number was eight with my parents. The number was six in my head. That's how I always thought. Six plus two is eight. That's our family. So my brother, when I was nine, told me we were all going to Martha's Vineyard for the summer, but he was going on a two-week camping trip in the Grand Tetons. And I was complaining. I made him cereal one night when he got home from his job. Raisin
0: bran and bananas. Yeah,
1: I'd slice up some bananas and thought I was like, you know, culinary. Let me get the little spoon or the big spoon tonight. I would fold up a napkin. I was like a homemaker. All I was missing was an apron. Let me pick the bowls. Yeah. I, uh, I was with him in the kitchen that night, and I remember just kind of being a spoiled little baby. Like, don't leave me. Why are you going on vacation? I didn't know people went on vacation without their families. I didn't know grownups took trips alone. And he was like, I'll never leave you. I will always be here for you. I'll always come back for you. And he died. So for the longest time, that is my association with men. And even though it seems, oh, God, of course, that's your problem. When you're in it, you're so far away from your own pain that you don't even know what you're upset about. You just know you're angry at the world. And that anger turns into motion, turns into productivity and deflection. And you lash out where you can, get attention where you can. And it just turned into this life where I was going 100 miles an hour. And it was a great life so I wasn't thinking anything was wrong because then I had success. I moved to LA and I finally what I thought the meaning of life was beginning, like, okay, now I can be on my own away from my family. Now I can be independent. I can show everybody I'm strong. I'm stronger than everybody in my family. I'm stronger than anybody I would ever meet. That was my narrative. And I didn't know it. I didn't know that was what I was saying to myself. So to find that out when you're 42 (laughs) is fucked up, you are like, Oh, shit, did I miss out? But I didn't miss out. I just that's learned. early.
0: A lot of people never get there.
1: Well, a lot of people probably don't even wake up, and you know what? They might be better for it. And so, to get really real, you have to pay somebody <laughs> to do that for you. Usually,
0: a lot of money.
1: That's a transaction I could get behind. I was like, listen, I'm paying you to fix my shit. Please tell me what's wrong with me. And he did. Who's like, you lack empathy. These are where you come up short and this is where you over deliver and you need everything to be more balanced. And we just went through my brain and went through my childhood and went through all of my experiences and my behavior today as an adult and what annoys me, what I have a lack of patience for. I had never been able to meditate. I had never been able to sit still for any length of time because motion is just avoidance. And I looked at therapy like I look at a lot of things in Los Angeles. I looked at it as a trend, as a gratitude universe area that I didn't want to be a part of. I felt like those people who talk about kale all day are fucking idiots and they annoy me. And I didn't want to become that. And so going into therapy, writing this all down, starting to meditate, changing my life in a way that I can be more present and mindful is like sentences that I never thought I would say. So it's A, embarrassing, because so many people are like, I told you so. I told you one day you're gonna wake up and be like, no. And everyone was right, but you don't find that stuff out until you're ready to find it out. Obviously it was
0: devastating to read about your brother dying, but the way that you wrote about him There was a tenderness there and just how he took care of you and the way he carried you when you pretended to fall asleep just so he could carry you, just so you could feel safe. And I think that that is the thing that certainly I can only speak for myself, that I feared the most because of losing that, of having that kind of comfort or having that kind of love, experiencing that kind of love and then losing it knowing what that feels like. So everything else that you encounter, you have to kind of learn that love isn't one-dimensional, that it can take on all these different kinds of characteristics. And there are different ways that you can actually feel it and give it and grow from it. And it's very multidimensional and it's vast. And I really understood what you meant when you were talking about how that became this kind of imprint for you and how you actually looked at men and the relationships that you had, and not even just with men, but just important relationships, significant relationships in your life. It is kind of like a retraining of your brain.
1: It's a rehabituation. Yeah. You know, my doctor was like, just meditate for three months. And I said, three months? Who's got three yeah. months? That's a pregnancy in my mind. You know, I was like, I can't meditate for three months. And then the idea that my impulsivity and my impulsiveness is always going to lead to short wins and not the long game. Like, I had never done something in the long game. Everything with me is temporary. I don't want to commit to anything. I don't want to be on a show for too long. I don't want to do this for too long. i got to move around. i got to be de- Is that why stand-up was so appealing to you? No, stand-up was appealing to me because there was a microphone and no one else on stage. <laughs> I just needed to talk and have people hear me. I was desperate for that. And once I got my fill of it, then I did. And I wasn't enjoying being on stage. I was enjoying walking off of it. And I knew that was wrong and upside down. So I knew all along like when I was time to stop doing things cuz the joy wasn't there and those beginning stages were gone. It becomes rote. And I wasn't coming from a place of like gratefulness. I was just kind of like, "Oh god, I got to go to Miami and do a show." I wasn't excited anymore because I burned myself out in every capacity, and that's what I've done my whole life. So it's nice to have a a career <laughs> where I can just pivot and have people come with me and be like, "Okay, I'm struggling with this right now," because ultimately I want to be telling the truth about my story because it's so relevant to other women and men and whomever to say, "If I can do this, you can do it." You know, I never thought I would be healthy enough to be sitting here talking about all this stuff. I would roll my eyes.
0: The Unstyled podcast was made possible by Estee Lauder, the eponymous luxury beauty brand created by one of the world's first women entrepreneurs. As a confident rule breaker ahead of her time, Mrs. Estee Lauder once said, we learn too much every day to be satisfied with yesterday's achievements. In her entrepreneurial pursuit, she invented disruptive opportunities to connect directly with her customers in a personal way that altered the beauty industry forever. Learn more about how Estee Lauder is continuing her legacy in-store and online at estelauder.com. Let's talk about relationships, because you mentioned a few times, just in the short time since we've been talking, about how you learned about what these patterns were, you know, what was really kind of driving you to being with certain kinds of people or what was making you leave. And what do you think that you've learned about yourself in terms of just your view of partnership? I mean, do you think marriage is outdated? What do you think you've learned about relationships and how you're going to kind of approach them? after writing this book and after working with Dr. Dan? Is it Dr. Uh, Dan?
1: Well, you can be. It's Dan, but I like Dr. Dan. That sounds perverted in a weird way. I had bad, uh, so I either picked guys who were completely devoted to me, which became unbearable, or people who were not available. And me trying How to How were they test, not available? Not emotionally available, not willing to like, be in a committed relationship or be in a committed relationship, but clearly lying or cheating. Echoes of my father of not being an uprights. I pride myself on being moral and telling the truth. And, da, da, da. and so for me, anytime I come up against that, I hate it because I hate it in myself. I hate being a liar. I hate not telling the truth. And the times that I have, I feel icky about, so icky that it's hard to even think about them. But when I see it in someone else, I know that's a weak spot for myself because I have such a visceral reaction. And I would test them. You know, I remember in my book, I talk about having this boyfriend down the Jersey Shore when I was 18. And we'd go away every weekend. I was 18. I think I lied and told him I was 21. Or maybe I was like 20. And I lied and said I was 21. Either way, I was lying. And he was like 30. And he had a weekend house. And we'd go every weekend to Belmar. And we'd drive down an hour and a half and drive down an hour and a half back at the end of the weekend. And when he would drop me off for the week, I wouldn't see him and the next weekend because he lived out of town and i would totally on the whole ride home just stop talking clench my fists and be pissed it was like he was dating a nine-year-old girl and he'd be like well, what's going on i'd be like mm. literally the sound would come out of my mouth like i can't talk to you and so every weekend i would be silent and then it would be in the car for an hour and a half and he didn't know what the hell was going on he would drop me off i'd storm off to my house And then every Friday, everything was fine again. I mean, that's how I was operating. And finally, he broke up with me because he didn't want to date a nine-year-old, luckily. So that kind of behavior. You couldn't
0: control it. I didn't
1: know what I was doing. I couldn't say to him, I miss you. I'm sad that you're leaving me right now. I could never say those words. So it became, I'll just sit here and be mad and no one can do anything to make me feel better.
0: Do you think that in some way you were trying to drive him away?
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to reject before I get rejected. I didn't get that when I was nine, that that wasn't a rejection. In my nine-year-old brain, that was a rejection. He left me. He said he wasn't leaving, and then he did. So that's black and white. There's no room for nuance in your nine-year-old brain. You don't have nuance yet. It wasn't an accident. It was a betrayal. You have to build out that language and actually have somebody who's talking to any child who's ever lost anyone and get them ready for adulthood. Otherwise, you're a nine-year-old with regard to romantic relationships for the rest of your life. No wonder I'm single.
0: (laughs) So many of us are, though.
1: It's not a thrilling endeavor to sit around and cry in front of a psychiatrist for a year, but it is an opportunity- That's the place
0: to do it. (laughs) For
1: huge growth. If you can get into your pain, we're all so scared of conflict and pain. If you can lean into it and be like, okay, first of all, we don't get better by doing well all the time. We only get better when we have hiccups and when we fall. That's when we learn. So if things are going well your entire life, then you're not doing something right.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about your mom a little bit because just the way that you described her, obviously in such beautiful detail, but she wasn't like a perfect mom. She definitely had flaws and you made them sound very sweet and endearing. There was something about her always starting and stopping these projects. She would do anything. She would knit. She would build a doghouse. She could plant a garden, but she never really did anything quite right, except she could make really good macaroni and cheese, right? Yeah,
1: she was a comforter. I have so many sentences I wish my mom would have said that she didn't. You know, like, where are you going?
0: (laughs) What are you doing with that six-pack of beer?
1: why are you drinking alcohol? Don't. I wanted to be overprotected because I was so underprotected, and my brothers were not protective. I mean, my brother who died was the most protective, but I was a little girl, so as I grew up, my two older brothers were, like, having two sisters, but weaker. (laughs) 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 They're just both, like, useless. (laughs) Anyway. But my mom was flowery and sweet, kind of just like la-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I didn't have any patience for my mother when she was my mom. I just thought she was too slow. She wasn't sharp enough. She wasn't quick enough. She wasn't clean enough. Nothing was enough from her. I liked her to snuggle with, but I was never going to go to her for advice. I didn't respect her the way that I respected my father growing up. That was misplaced respect, but still I had respect for him. My mom, I knew I could manipulate any way I needed to, and I didn't need her so much. My sister who's here, Shauna, she and my mom were very close, and she kind of needed my mom, and my mom was there for her and wanted to be needed, and those two were tight and shared religion and all of that, so... My mom I'm used to say that. She's like, you don't need me. You know, I only needed her when I really needed her to do something. I didn't need her emotionally. Or maybe I did and didn't get what I wanted. So then I just rejected her. Maybe it was after my brother. I don't know the chronology with that. But that's something actually worth exploring. But either way, when people say, oh, your parents are doing or everybody's doing the best that we can or that they can, not everybody's doing the best that they can. <laughs> that's so <laughs> Some people lie. are just <laughs> mailing it in. Doing the best that you can is actually being thoughtful about what you're doing and then going, okay, I'm going to try and get better at this and maybe fail or succeed, but at least you're conscious about it. But I do believe that my mom loved me and all of those great things. She loved all of us. And- Being there when she died was like really powerful for me because I had never been responsible in my entire life within my family. I was not the dependable one. I was the fuck up. So when she died and I could be the person that showed up and I was the strong one and I kind of took charge of the situation to a degree that my brothers and sisters would allow me. But I was there and I was stolid and she was like, help me die. I'm like, I'm your girl. I will help you die. And so that experience was completely in contrast to my brother because he was just snatched out of our lives. And I would prefer the person to die slower because for the person losing, it's easier to say goodbye. But that, of course, is unfair to the person dying who does not want to be remembered for months dying on a bed and having their family watch them. So it's a real (laughs) catch-22 about death.
0: It is. You said something really beautiful in the book. That's what death is like, though. You can only cry for two weeks straight. You cry, and then you get tired of crying. And someone says something, and then you're all laughing. And then it feels bad to be laughing. But it also feels so good. Without the laughter, we'd all be dying, too. I felt like that was beautiful. I know it sounds so insanely corny, but it's the cycle of life. It's the only way that you can actually fully feel the presence of that person by allowing joy or some kind of levity into that moment. Because death is like... My father died six years ago, but I think it's just such a a profound life experience to go through that and to be the one that's left behind. The presentation of that and what that means and how we are called to be different and to change and to honor ourselves as much as we honor the person that we've lost. But I don't know, there was something about that. I didn't really even understand the joke that you were making about Shana. is it Shayna or uh, Shana she was sleeping close to
1: oh my brother was just making an incest joke you know on the eve of <laughs> my mother's death typical behavior like I said my brothers I, are I about as e- useful as two ashtrays on a motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even understand it but I just loved it so much talk and... about damage there we go my two brothers are so fucked up for my brother's death one of them is overly emotional, like to the point where you're like, okay, cool. Does he cry a lot? Well, yeah, he can. But, you know, they're also screwed up. It screws up such a family dynamic. It's a
0: spectrum of being screwed up.
1: Yeah. I mean, in my mind, I always think in terms of numbers and spellings, I like a visual. So as soon as my mom said, oh, your brother's dead, I was like, five, 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 not six, not six, a five. It was like this tick I had. Wait, we're not whole. This isn't round. This isn't a round number. We don't make a family anymore. Our family's broken. It's over. Everyone's going to know we're frauds.
0: Wow. I mean, that loop in your head that's constantly going, even when you're not even aware of it, can play such a toll on you. But how did you, because you talked also about definitely thinking that seeing psychiatrists was a lot of bullshit and you didn't believe in it. And it seemed like a lot of Los Angeles woo woo. But then you found Dan. What made him different? How was he the right person at that right moment? when you were able to really start to confront all of this?
1: I first interviewed him on my Netflix show, Chelsea, and about adolescent brain development. I was like, oh, this guy's talking about brain in a scientific way. The amygdala, the hippocampus, this is what happens with your fear zone and da-da-da, and your prefrontal cortex. Like, all of the stuff that I was like, oh, I can get behind anything educational... And linear, I can do that. I'll go in and talk to him about my brain while I test out to make sure he's smarter than I am. And I can't run circles around him, you know, because I had been to therapists who are just kind of trying to enable you or not trying to, but kind of enabling you and never really getting down to the meat of the matter. But I also wasn't in a place where I was ready to get real. So I went to him for about three sessions and I just went off and he let me. Dan is a very good therapist and has been doing this for a long time, so obviously knew that my anger was coming from somewhere deeper. And, you know, we would ask me about my childhood, and I was so steadfast. I was like, I don't care about my childhood. My brother died. My mom's dead. My dad's dying. I just want to get better at being me. Can we just not talk about death? I know about it. I'm cool with it. I know how to deal with it. And, and he's and like that. He's like, well, obviously. He's like, okay, <laughs> let's... And we tried to meditate and I couldn't meditate. I couldn't sit still. I was a hot mess. Looking back, I was like, oh my God, he knew there was a truck coming down. (laughs) My train was coming down the track like hot. And he's like, fuck, I better get out of the way. And then one day he handed me an orange and he just said, I picked this off my tree. That's the cover. (laughs) And that's why the cover has orange peels everywhere because he handed it to me in his office. And I remember thinking, ugh, I hate warm fruit. It was room temperature, which I have a whole chapter about room temperature things in my book. And it was a carb. And I live in L.A. And I'm like, carbs and room temperature, like, it's not even going to be a cold orange. In that moment, recognized my rejection of anything anyone gave me. Like, I was like, oh, this is why you're such a bitch. (laughs) You can't even say thank you for the fucking orange right now because you'd have to be vulnerable. And that's when I just like lost it i just started bawling and i was like oh my god and my orange was everywhere because apparently i forgot how to peel one and there were like you know an orange is a hot mess and i I had a tissue in my hand and he was handing me a tissue because i was crying and then i had the oranges in the tissues and before you knew it it was just one big like origami of orange tissue and like tears and I was just sniffling and like I'm surprised I didn't bark at some point. I mean, it was just like an undoing of a person. And then I was like, Okay, I have to tell you about what happened the day my brother. He like died. regressed you with <laughs> yes. an orange. He's like, Maybe if I give her a snack, <laughs> she'll shut the fuck up and start talking about real shit. So do you, do you want to be in a relationship now? Yeah, now I can admit it and I'm not embarrassed and I don't feel needy. I do want to be in a relationship. So what kind of relationship are you thinking that
0: you want to be in? What are some kinds of qualities of a partnership that are really appealing to you right now?
1: Well, my friend Lori David said to me, it takes a healthy to get a healthy, to attract a healthy. And I was like, yeah, that's good. And I think now I want an adult. I want to be in an adult relationship because I feel like I'm an adult now. I don't feel like a little kid anymore. I feel like, oh yeah, I have that aspect to myself. I have that little girl playfulness. I'll always have that. I have that in spades. I don't need any more of that. What I needed more of was adulthood and being like, okay, I wanna have an honest conversation and I wanna remember the entire conversation. I wanna be present for life. I wanna look people in the eye. I don't wanna be distracted by my phone every two seconds. I want to have engagement with people because I know how much better it feels to be awake. Do you feel empathetic now? Yeah, now I have, that's my growth edge. You know, I have to think about it all the time. It's training a muscle. So just because you don't have empathy doesn't mean you can't get it. Now I know to look out for it.
0: And you also are working on a documentary right now, aren't you? Mm,
1: Yeah, I just wrapped a documentary for Netflix that will come out in the fall. And it's about privilege, white privilege, specifically my own. And then the conversation of privilege and all the white people who don't like to talk about that. Tell me a little bit more about that. It was part and parcel of after the election and freaking out the way that I did and feeling like I was a spoiled little girl. This is the first thing that really rocked my world since my last incident in my childhood. This was the first time my world was shaken. And it made me really think, wow, look at your life. Look how easy things have been for you and how, yeah, I've worked hard, I've hustled, whatever. It was always happening for me more easily than it would have happened to other people. And I never took into consideration the fact that I'm white <laughs> and that I'm pretty and that maybe a black girl wouldn't have been rewarded for writing a book about one night stands or doing a talk show, making fun of everybody and saying what was wrong with Lindsay Lohan and calling everybody on their shit. I had to take a real good look at why I was so naive and why I was living in such a bubble and why I was an elitist and I am an elitist. It's about how I act moving forward, you know, not beating myself up for the past. Chelsea Handler it has been
0: so much fun and such a pleasure having you on the show today and I love your book it's life will be the death of me and it's really beautiful and I hope you all go out and get it thank you For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Jay Brunson and Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Leanne Duggan. Our theme music today is by the artist Kauf, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with actress and fashion mogul Kate Hudson on Not Compromising on Creativity. See you then.